0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to a summer special episode of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. You may be wondering why we're still talking to you, despite the fact that we gave notice that we'd be on a summer break. Well, we had the opportunity to interview a couple of really fascinating people towards the end of July and we thought we'd bring them to you as bonus episodes over the next couple of weeks. So you're listening to the first one now which is with Ambassador Andreas Rosenthal, the former ambassador for Mexico to the United Kingdom, former Deputy Foreign Minister of Mexico and we had a really fascinating conversation about the outlook in Mexico politically and generally Mexico's stance on foreign affairs. Hope you enjoy it. OK, so today I'm delighted to be joined by Ambassador Andres Rosenthal, who was formerly the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs from Mexico. He was also Mexico's ambassador to the United Kingdom from 1995 to 1997 and is a career diplomat of more than 35 years' experience and the founding president of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. And, of course, also I, should, I can't forget that he's also a senior advisor at Chatham House. Andres, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, So we're here today to discuss the political outlook in Mexico under the administration of President López Obrador, popularly known as AMLO, who's been in power since December 2018. Andres, I was wondering maybe we could begin by looking back to the presidential election of July 2018 and thinking about maybe what were the factors that made AMLO's campaign so successful and what were the key manifesto promises that he made at that time?
1: He had been running for president already several times before the election in, in 2019. Uh, he lost twice. And uh, I think th- we have a saying in Spanish that the third time is the best, is the is the time in which you do, you get what you want. Uh, I think that's part of it, but I think it's also very much due to the fact that there was a feeling uh, that Mexico had had a period of intense uh, participation in a globalized uh, economy, uh, in the ability to have signed the North American Free Trade Agreement with the US and Canada, uh, with a big boom in investment and in capitalism in general, and that there was a a need to address some of the social issues that Mexico had pending, has still pending, and also to um, give a verdict, perhaps, on some of the less positive parts of the former governments, uh, corruption, the issue of violence, uh, organized crime, and uh, tepid economic growth. So um, I think it was it was a very opportune moment for a different type of candidacy, such as the one that Lopez Obrador offered, and uh, he was elected by a very important majority, fifty three percent of the vote, uh, which was uh, uh, high high for Mexican standards, and uh, we're now about uh, eight months into his presidency, uh, beginning to see whether the campaign promises that he made, mainly on issues such as putting an end to corruption, reducing violence and the activities of drug traffickers, are going to be successful or not. Uh, We have some preliminary indications on the economy Mm -hmm. uh, which are not looking very positive at the moment. I think some of the decisions that he made at the outset of his administration, like cancelling an airport that was one third built and having to pay indemnity to the uh, companies that were uh, and investors that were participating, as well as wanting to build a refinery in his home state that apparently by all technical standards is not necessary, and um, other projects that he has, uh, together with an austerity program that has led to a fair degree of unemployment among uh, people who were working for the government, all of these seem to indicate that Mexico is going to be at the very low end of economic growth if there's going to be any growth at all this year.
0: So I, as you say, it's early days, but in terms of the pledges that he's made, do you, do you think that there's a feeling that he understands the policy solutions that he needs to enact? Or do you think that that was more the words that he had to say during a campaign in order to Get
1: elected. I, I think I think that's pretty much the case. Uh, the, the second interpretation. I think a lot of it was campaign rhetoric, which was useful, but one has to remember that Amlo was elected as much for his own positions and his own philosophy, if you like, on how to govern. Mm. as by a repudiation of some of the excesses of past governments from the PRI and the PAN in Mexico. I think uh, the the combination was such that the, the one factor that is this repudiation is over. Mm. Uh, and the other one, which is seeing him fulfill all of the promises he made as a populist that he is, will determine whether, in effect, he is able to undergo this fourth transformation as he calls it to be able to change mexico for the for the better mm. uh, the as i say the economic indications are not particularly good right now so we'll have to see how that uh, how that goes forward uh, but um, on the Issue of corruption and on the issue of violence, there hasn't been any progress, at least not visibly. I think that uh, in the issue of violence, there have been more homicides in Mexico related to criminal activity than ever before. Mm. In these eight months, it's grown. So we'll have to see. It's early going, and I think a lot of people want to give him a benef- the benefit of, of at least a period of time to be able to implement these things. But on the other hand, a lot of the issues that Mexico is facing are very pressing mm. and need to be addressed very quickly. So we're, we're seeing this contradiction in terms of what has been said and promised and what has been realized.
0: Picking up on those issues, the violent crime and corruption in particular, is one of the issues that AMLO has that these problems that he's trying to address are almost beyond the powers of an executive to do. There's a lot of research that's been done about how corruption's actually sort of social norms-based problem. It's something that's to do with culture and how societies are built. And for one man to just come in and say, OK, corruption is going to finish now, it's far easier said than done. So does it actually just reveal the limits of presidential power in Mexico?
1: Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's spot on. Changing a history of... Um The ability to corrupt public officials or law enforcement or the judicial system takes, uh, I think, generations. I don't think it comes overnight, and it's certainly not in the purview or, or in the possibility of one... Uh, six-term president, six-year-term president to be able to do. He has, in his rhetoric, fundamentally said, you know, I'm not corrupt, and I think he isn't. Therefore, no one else is going to be corrupt because I won't tolerate corruption I- anywhere. Mm. Well, it, it's it sounds nice, and it's, it's something which obviously people uh, are very quick to attach themselves to because nobody likes corruption. It's an additional cost on everything whether it's uh, the, uh, the the individual who has to pay off uh, uh, someone to do something for him in the public sector or whatever. But um, I think uh, getting from here to there is going to be something that's going to take considerably longer, as, by the way, it has elsewhere in the world. Of course. Yeah. Uh, it's not just a Mexican phenomenon. So... Um, I'm not very optimistic that we will see an end to corruption, as he has promised, because he doesn't say I'm going to reduce it or I'm going to try to avoid it or I'm going to make it more difficult. He says I'm going to end it. And that's what I find uh, difficult for him to be able to fulfill.
0: Mm -hmm. These issues that we've been talking about, they're relatively domestic focused. But what have you sort of seen in the first eight months of the presidency about, about AMLO's approach to foreign policy and foreign affairs?
1: His uh, foreign policy is very limited in terms of the interest that he himself has, and uh, I think that it has been, in these eight months, uh, pretty much uh, reduced to the relationship with the United States. And the fact that uh, President Trump, from the very first day of his campaign for the presidency, began it by saying some very nasty and pejorative things about Mexicans. Uh, as he was coming down the escalator at Trump Tower announcing his pre- his presidential campaign, he began by talking uh, badly about NAFTA, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. He began talking uh, very aggressively about Mexicans, uh, illegal immigrants, and called them rapists and criminals and things like that. And that's been a constant in Trump's rhetoric and in Trump's political uh, campaigning uh, from that time up until today and will continue to be during his re-election campaign, I'm sure. What uh, AMLO has done is really to uh, try to ignore all of that uh, and not react to Trump's outbursts uh, and to uh, basically attempt to have as normal a relationship as he could have and as Mexico could have with its northern neighbor, which has always been um, a, a good relationship by and large, but has its issues. It has issues on the trading part of the relationship. It has issues in the drug trafficking, on the border security part, on migration. When Trump decided that he wanted to threaten Mexico, by applying a 25% tariff to all of Mexican exports to the United States, and you have to remember that Mexico is the second uh, most important market for the United States right. after Canada, mm-hmm. and we're both we're more or less the same uh, at the same level. Uh, we do more trading with the United States than all of the rest of Latin America combined. The uh, threat of a tariff, such as he said he would impose. Uh, was a major uh, aggression against Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what AMLO did as a response to that was to say, well, you're threatening us with that because you have huge numbers of Central Americans who are moving to the United States through Mexico, and you want to stop that, so I'm going to help you stop it. And he then deployed the very recently constituted National Guard which is really a military force uh, which has been working in Mexico on law enforcement for quite some time, to control the southern and northern borders of Mexico in order to appease Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump then withdrew his threat, as he tends to do every time he makes a threat, and the uh, the result has been, uh, so far... We don't have the tariffs, and we're helping the Americans do their police work to keep uh, migrants uh, away from the southern border of the U.S. Uh, other than that, I think his foreign policy is is rather limited. Um, he decided to withdraw from any active role in the Venezuela on the Venezuelan issue, which was something the former government was very much involved in. He didn't attend the G20 summit in Japan. He didn't attend the Pacific Alliance summit that recently took place, uh, which was also an initiative from the previous administration. So a lot of his foreign policy today is let's change what we're doing. We don't want to be part of the world as much as previous governments were. Uh, we want to concentrate on our domestic Problems on Mm -hmm. poverty and on inequality and on violence and so on, corruption. And that's where I'm going to spend my time. So the the foreign policy aspect is, I think, for him, low priority.
0: Do you think there are a lot of similarities between AMLO and President Trump in that regard? Because it does seem that in this, we can't call it a movement, but in this uh, wave of populist leaders coming to power, one thing is a rejection of multilateralism and a reassertion of domestic priorities and we're going to make America great again.
1: We're going to make Mexico great again. Exactly, that's, yeah. that's very much, that's very much the, the, the tone. I think a lot of it, uh, it has to do with uh, his own ideological... Tendency, which is uh, very much left of center, unlike Trump's, which is more right of center. Mm-hmm. But they have a lot in common. They both attack the media, they don't like criticism they uh fight back whenever uh someone of importance uh, comes out to say that they don't like what they're doing mm-hmm. very in that sense very much the same they both have alternative facts <laughs> so when uh, you know a journalist will come up to amlo in one of his daily press conferences that he holds every weekday morning for an hour and a half or 2 hours and ask him a question that's uh, somehow uncomfortable or has a critical Uh, tone to it, uh, he will say, well, I have other facts. So when uh, a very well-known Mexican journalist who works in the U.S. for Univision um, asked him about the uh, hike in the uh, number of homicides that were taking place in Mexico in spite of his campaign promise to reduce them, uh, AMLO said, well, I think you're wrong. I have different facts. And then the journalist pulled out a, a graph which came from the government's own uh, security uh, <laughs> sector uh, saying exactly what he was saying. And so AMLO said, well, yeah, but they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's, it's very much this, um, this type of, um, of relationship with criticism that uh, they just don't like to be criticized.
0: Now, just speculating here, but if you were president of Mexico, what would, what would your approach to dealing with President Trump be? Do you think that actually there is some merit in AMLO's approach of sort of appeasing Trump's kind of excesses?
1: You know, it's difficult to say. I, my own feeling is that those uh, leaders, world leaders, who began their relationship with Trump, on the basis of trying to be nice to him and and not fighting with him or not answering back when he uh, said nasty things about them or about their countries, has been a, pretty much a failure. I look at the Canadians, the Japanese, and others, even in the European Union, uh, Britain itself, uh, where there was at least an attempt at the outset to sort of be, you know, we're allies, we're friends, tried to be rational and reasonable in our, uh, in our discourse, it has always ended badly uh, for the other country. Uh, Trump doesn't seem to care very much about whether anybody is nice to him or not. Uh, he has his agenda and he follows it directly. My uh, concern in terms of Mexico is that Trump, because he's a bully to some extent and because he likes to confront Uh, leaders with uh, his own agenda, Uh, I think he respects strong responses such as he's had from the Chinese or from the North Koreans or from the Russians, for that matter, Mm -hmm. than the sort of weak, uh, uh, you know, uh, lily-livered, nice uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that Mexico really should have been and should continue to try to be uh, a bit more... Uh, direct in its responses to when Trump attacks on different issues, whether it's a trade issue or a migration issue, there's no reason for Mexico to have to do the U.S.'s dirty work in keeping Central Americans out of Me- out of the United States. Um, they're not coming to Mexico to stay in Mexico; they're going to Mexico through to get to the U.S. And um, for us to have to police our Northern border and our southern border to keep them out of Mexico goes very much against Mexico's traditional uh, policies of asylum and refugee uh, reception and so on. And uh, it just seems to me to be a big contradiction because in his campaign, AMLO was very clear. He said, you know, we will welcome anyone who wants to come to Mexico. Uh, will welcome Central Americans. He even used the expression where one person eats, a thousand can eat. And uh, that's not the case. Uh, Mexico is still a relatively poor country and we don't have the ability to uh, assimilate enormous amounts of people coming in. But why should we keep help keeping them out of the United States? Uh, that's something we never did in the past. And I think uh, some of our former leaders, foreign ministers, and people who ran foreign policy would be turning over in their graves if they saw what was going on.
0: I just wanted to move away slightly from the United States, actually, and talk about the rest of Latin America. Forgive my ignorance, but I think it would also be interesting to our to our listeners. What has been Mexico's traditional position in Latin America in terms of their influence with their neighbours? And do you feel that that's changing now?
1: Mexico is obviously a Latin American country. Um, we have a common language with most of Latin America, with one exception or two. Uh, we have a common history of being colonies of Spain uh, in most cases, and uh, we're very much part of Latin America, but we're also very tied to North America, to the U.S. particularly and to Canada in a, to a lesser degree, but also a part of that. Our relationship in Latin America has been very much governed by the way in which Latin America itself has gone through various iterations of attempts to integrate and unify and do things all the way back from the time of Simon Bolivar, when he had his very first idea of a confederation of Latin American states. I... I really think that we, uh, we have the record in Latin America of the most failed institutions to have been set up over our history to try to bring Latin America together. Uh, distance is a big problem. I mean, Brazil is as far from Mexico as Mexico is from London. So that's one problem. Geog- geographically confusing. <laughs> geog- geog- geography is is not very conducive. We have big mountain ranges and, uh, and pieces of Latin America that are still impassable, like the Darien Gap between Panama and Colombia. Mm-hmm. Infrastructure is not in place that makes it easy to be able to move goods or, or people from one to the other parts of Latin America. Latin America also includes the Caribbean, which is, a, you know, a group of islands, uh, English-speaking, French-speaking, that uh, are also very much, I'd say, to some extent, on the margins of, of Latin American integration. And all the efforts that you've seen—I mean, uh, Aladi, Mercosur, Alba—all these things that have been set up over the years to try to bring countries of Latin America together have so far failed. Uh, And I think that uh, Mexico's attitude towards Latin America is very much like its attitude towards the rest of the countries with which it deals. We have a strong relationship with the Central American countries because we border on two of them, on Guatemala and Belize. And uh, the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, it's close, Mm -hmm. and that's where most of the migration flows are coming at the moment into Mexico to go to the U.S. And we've had over past in the history uh, close relationships with Colombia, with Venezuela, with Chile. Uh, During the military dictatorships in Argentina and in Chile, we took in a good number of refugees who left from those countries to escape the military dictatorships. But uh, I think we look at Latin America more as a market uh, than we do as a political entity. Uh, And um, I think history has borne us out in the sense that there have been so many different periods of types of government and uh, societies in Latin America over, you know, the years since our independence in the 19th, early 19th century, that at the end of the day, for us, Latin America is, whether it's Brazil or Argentina or Chile or Guatemala or El Salvador, opportunities for investment and for trade.
0: One change from the outside, at least, it seems that is being introduced in Latin America is the influence of of China in terms of investment and their activities in the economy. Is that something that Mexico is sharing as well? Or is engagement with China still a lot less
1: developed? It's a lot less developed. Um, I think the Chinese uh, have some historical grudges on Mexico. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Uh, Mexico, for example, when the, the first move by a Chinese government to come to Latin America and to look for investment opportunities and to request that they be granted market economy status was rejected by Mexico. Uh, that was one factor, I think, which inhibited a Chinese approach to Mexico. Another one was that we were the country that held out the longest against China being a member of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, because we had had experience with China's trading relationship prior to that. And uh, we knew that they uh, didn't and still don't really play by the rules. Mm. They have their own way of dealing with uh, trade. They are highly protectionist. Uh, They want to be everywhere, but they don't want everywhere to be there. Um, And then we have some historical baggage with the Chinese that dates back to the turn of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries where we were rather hostile to Chinese immigration, partly because the Americans were also and asked us to... uh, to uh, do the same, and so we interned Chinese, and we were very anti-Chinese in terms of their possibilities to come to Mexico. We are the only country that has a Pacific coastline that doesn't have a significant Chinese community. Mm. Our com- Chinese community dates from the late 1800s, early 1900s, while as uh, today, all the other countries with the Pacific coast have huge Chinese communities, Canada, the U.S., and all the way down to to Chile. Uh, so, no, China, uh, and, and also because we are so tied to the U.S. economically and socially that uh, to some extent today where you have a, a rivalry between China and the United States, it's uh, very difficult for a country as tied to the U.S. as Mexico is to have the type of relationship with China that some of the South American or other Latin American countries have. I would put it in the same category a bit as as the Canadian relationship. And we all know that today, uh, the relationship between China and Canada is extremely tense and difficult, uh, partly because of the Huawei uh, conflict, but also because it, it is very difficult for a country as close to the U.S., uh, when the U.S. has this very open uh, rivalry with China to have to choose between one or the other. It's 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 a non-choice as far as Canada and Mexico are concerned.
0: Thinking about China's activities in, in the, the rest of Latin America, do you see that broadly as a positive influence? Do you think the, the investment that they're bringing is going to help these countries... Or do you think actually it's something that shouldn't necessarily be applauded?
1: I'm of I'm I'm, I'm of uh, of a mixed mind on this issue because I've seen uh, in some cases uh, what China China investment really looks like and what the interests are. Most of China's investment in Latin America came originally. Uh, Because of China's uh, thirst for raw materials, Uh, you know, mining and oil and other things. Most of which were unattainable for them in Mexico because we at that time still had state monopolies on many of those uh, parts of, of what China needed in terms of its economic development. On the other hand, I think in a world of scarce capital for investment, it's obviously interesting to be able to count on capital coming from a country that has a $3 trillion uh, surplus in balance of payments and is able to pretty much spend freely on what it's doing. But I also remember that I've seen Chinese investment in practice in a country like Brazil where they bring the Chinese all the way from the drivers of the trucks to the machinery that comes from China. Everything comes from China. And the actual investment that remains in the countries where they've been working is is probably less than uh, it appears. And you see this very much in Africa and in some parts of Asia. I mean, the Malaysians, for example, have have clearly turned the corner and they've decided that Chinese investment is not what they thought it was going to be. Uh, the other part of it, of course, is that uh, as rival investors, if you like, to the Western countries, they don't care very much about human rights. They don't care about uh, you know, crime and security and other issues. So for a lot of the recipient countries, it's very convenient. They don't have to worry about the conditionality that some Western investors would put on a country. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm of a mixed mind. I think there, there's been Chinese investment that's been very helpful mm. and very productive for some of the countries. And there have been other uh, huge uh, pharaonic projects that uh, benefited the Chinese much more than the local economy.
0: We're coming towards the end, but I just wanted to ask one last question, which will hopefully leave us with a kind of optimistic note, which is just looking at the current state of the world and the current state of international affairs. If you were advising AMLO on on foreign policy, what would you see as the biggest opportunity for Mexico? What would you be saying you should be spending your time investing in? Well,
1: I think Mexico over the last 25, 30 years has taken politically difficult decisions to become very much part of a globalized, multilateral, rules-based system. Uh, we joined the WTO. We opened our economy. We signed free trade agreements with Canada and the U.S., but also with another 30-some countries, including the European Union. We opened a lot of our presence in uh, the Far East, in Japan, in, in some of the uh, Pacific Rim countries. We strengthened our relationship with Latin America, uh, in spite of what I was telling you before about the difficulties of finding integration. Sure. And I think that that we should continue that. I think Mexico's place, Mexico has a very geostrategic position in the world. We are the only country that has, in all four compass points, uh, very close and important economic relationships obviously with the U.S. going north, with Latin America going south, with Europe across the Atlantic, and with the Pacific Rim across the Pacific. We are strategically placed to be part of that global community. And uh, I would believe that Mexico's best interest lies in maintaining that and in strengthening those, those aspects. Uh, one of the areas where I would think we should have a priority, which is particularly relevant to Chatham House, is uh, with the with the UK, because after all, uh, once the Brexit process takes its course, Britain, which traditionally has been a very big investor in Mexico, and we have a very close economic relationship, will want to have its own trading relationship, its own economic relationship with Mexico. Uh, The government already has designated Mexico as one of the five priority countries for that when it happens. And so I suspect that we will be wanting to have a very close relationship with the UK, as we already do with the EU. Uh, We've negotiated an upgrade to our existing EU cooperation, And I think it'll be very important to transfer that on to Britain and perhaps even go further. Because uh, if you look back on Mexico's history, at the beginning of the 20th century, Britain was the biggest investor in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much of our infrastructure was built by British investment. And uh, we are a European country because we speak a European language. And we have a European culture and, in many ways, a European religion. So I think um, uh, we need to be part of the global community. I know that today that's not fashionable to say. Uh, People, as we were talking about before, believe that you have to focus inward and you have to worry more about what's going on inside the country. But I think one thing doesn't exclude the other. And I think Mexico needs to play the role that it has played uh, with the soft power that it has, uh, which goes all the way from uh, Mexican food, where you'll find everywhere in the world, Mexican restaurants um, and Mexican cuisine to uh, Mexican products like tequila and other things that, that people uh, buy. Uh, I, think, I, I think we need to be part of that community. We need to be part of that world. And uh, I would very much hope that uh, Mr. López Obrador and his government, his six-year period, the term, uh, would be able to combine the social agenda, the domestic part of what he wants to do, which I applaud and very much am in favor of, at the same time as we don't withdraw from the rest of the world.
0: Ambassador Andres Rosenthal, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Ben.